Well, good to be with you. Again, my name's Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City Church. Man, I've been like out of the pulpit the past couple of weeks. It's like feels really good to be back with you guys. Um, this morning, uh, we are going to uh, dig into the last section of Ephesians, but I thought uh, maybe I might give you a little bit of explanation of where I was the past couple of weeks. Um, super grateful for Aaron and for Dustin for preaching a while. Uh, I kind of took a few weeks away. And uh, really the point of doing that is twofold. One is so that as a church, you guys aren't dependent on me, because like, as much as you might like really love my fantastic beard... Or like, just think I have some really insightful something to say. Like, it's not really me that's the most important. It's God's words that's most important. And so, when people besides me preach, hopefully, what it affirms in you guys is that like, man, there's lots of great people in our church that know how to teach God's word, and that's important and valuable and really good, and something that will continue to happen, right? Um, but twofold is um, it takes a while to plan ahead and think where we're going as we prepare for what's coming in the coming year, and especially with regards to teaching and preaching. And so the past few weeks, I've really spent uh, much of that time uh, prepping ahead for where we're headed in the coming months, basically this spring. So uh, d- we're going to finish up the book of Ephesians this week, which is exciting, right? And uh, ne- the next two weeks, we're going to be doing uh, kind of a two-week mini-series on the theology of the local church and of church membership. And what is that, and why is it important, and what does God's word have to say about it? And so, uh, Steph mentioned that that's kind of launch us into uh, a church membership class. And so, again, if you have questions about that, come find me or Aaron. We'd love to talk to you about that. So, um, and then uh, after we do that two week series, we're going to be uh, studying Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, and that'll basically take us through Memorial Day. And so, um, maybe you've read the Sermon on the Mount. It's like Jesus' most famous sermon, and you've thought. Wow, that sounds really profound. What is he talking about, right? And that's how I've approached it, definitely, if I'm honest, sometimes, too. And so uh, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. Man, in my preparations these past few weeks, I'm really, really looking forward to that. I think it'll be good. And I think uh, I, can, I can basically promise you that you will be challenged immensely by God's Word and what Jesus has to say. And I can pretty much assure you that you're going to be surprised by what Jesus has to say as well. And so looking forward to that. And then uh, this summer we're going to be doing a series in the Old Testament. Um, And the focus of that series over the course of the summer is going to be to take a look at a bunch of the familiar stories that we know from the Old Testament, but rather to highlight and take a look at how those stories aren't really just kind of random narratives in, in the Bible, but rather they're ultimately about revealing and pointing towards Jesus and the gospel. And so we're going to take a look this summer about how Jesus is seen and proclaimed and revealed in the Old Testament. And so that should be really fun. So that's where we're headed the next uh, couple of months as we head into the spring and summer here. Um, But this morning we're wrapping up the book of Ephesians. And if you've been with us, we've been studying Ephesians since October or so. Uh, This morning we uh, wrap the whole book up and it's kind of a part two from Aaron's talk last week about Satan and demons. So that's a super fun way to wrap it up, right? Um, Last week Aaron talked a lot about the who that we're fighting in spiritual warfare, right? And he said that the, the who that we're fighting, verse 12, right, is that we're not struggling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, against Satan and demons, right? And uh, Aaron characterized uh, Satan and demons with a few things. He says they're characterized by these things. One, they are real. They're not metaphors or euphemisms for, like, bad things that happen in life or opposition to, like, you getting a house or something like that. Rather, they're real, and they're evil angels who rebelled and sinned against God. Secondly, 
it's really important they're characterized that they're not equal with God. It, it's not an even fight, right? It's not like, ooh, the powers of evil and, and good are like at odds and they're constantly in this neck and neck battle. No, it's like God has squashed them, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter, um, chapter 1 says, God raised Christ from the dead, seated him in the heavenly realms far above all rule and power and authority and dominion, every name, not only in the, this age, but every name in the age that is to come. And so Jesus is far above every spiritual force or authority. He said their passion, the goal of the Satan and demons, is to destroy the work of the gospel in our lives and in the world. And the way that they do that, the tactics that they used, Aaron said, uh, that those are lies and accusations. So I think a lot of times, and Aaron said this last week, we tend to think that like anything demonic is like involves like possession and head, and head spinning around, right, and all the weird, all that kind of weird stuff. But the tools of the enemy are a lot more common than head spinning around, and they're a lot more deceptive, and I think they're a lot more dangerous. C.S. Lewis says this: "There's two equal and opposite traps that Christians can fall into when it comes to thinking about the spiritual realm. He says, one, we can overestimate it by thinking way too much about the influence and power and authority that the the, um, spiritual realms have. And secondly, he says, we can underestimate it. We think far too little about it. Both are traps and both are equally equally dangerous because overestimating the power of the spiritual forces that, we, that, that are against us results in fear. And underestimating the powers of the spiritual forces against us results in being unprepared for battle. Neither of which are going to empower God's people to stand firm in the spiritual battles that we're commanded to do here in, in chapter 6. So if last week was all about the enemy and his tactics, then this week is about our part, Right? This week is about our role in the spiritual battles that we face. And so Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 6 tells us that our role in fighting spiritual battles is not to win the spiritual battles, but it says that our role in spiritual battles is to put on the armor of God so that we can withstand the schemes, withstand the attacks of the enemy. Our role is not to win the battle. Our role is to defend, to stand firm in the midst of the battle. And so in order to kind of process that and look at that, we're going to ask three questions. Uh, One, when do we put on the armor? Two, what is the armor and how does it actually defend us? And three, how do you get that stuff on, right? So when do we put the armor on? What is it? And how do we put the armor on? So let's read the passage and then we'll pray and dive into God's word this morning. Does that sound good? All right, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter uh, 10 through 24. This is kind of the broader section I thought we'd read as we wrap up the book. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13, here's where our passage begins this morning. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil, then the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit at all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words would be given me, so I would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And pray that I would declare it fearlessly as I should. And Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you'll be, you would know how I am and what I'm doing. And I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you would know how we are and that he would encourage you. So peace to the brothers and sisters, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an, an imperishable or an undying love. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks that like in your providence, in your love for us, you would um, save it for us and that you would keep it for us, that we might study it and know it and not just know about it, but know you as we study it. And so God, I just pray that like I'm talking about spiritual warfare this morning. And so God, I ask that you would protect me from those things as well. God, I pray that as I preach and speak that you just, that you would protect me from any lies that I would be tempted to believe and from any accusations that I would be tempted to hear. And God, that you might just fill me with your spirit so that I might proclaim the good news about who you are this morning. So I need you and we need you. And so we just come and submit ourselves under the authority of you and of the authority of your word. Pray that that would be for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So question one then, right? When do you put on the armor? This might seem like an obvious answer, but before the battle starts is the answer to that question, right? The language in the passage, Nathan, you can find this in verse 13 here. The language in the passage has to do with a past tense to it, right? It says, with the belt of truth around your waist. It doesn't say, and fastening it around your waist. It says, having it buckled, having it already around you, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Not, not putting it on, with it in place, with it fastened. Having your feet fitted, your shoes on, ready to go. It's referring to a single past tense action that happened. You got dressed for battle. Having been dressed for battle, you are ready to stand. If you get dressed for battle, not because the battle is at hand, that would be too late, right? You would be getting stabbed or with an arrow to your heart or something like that, right? You get dressed for battle because you know the battle is going to come. Verse 13 says, therefore, put on the armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. The day of evil here is not referring to like a cosmic doomsday event, right? This is not like D-Day or something like that. Rather, it's referring to those specific times of satanic attack that come with extraordinary force or with when that temptation to yield is really strong. I think if you're honest with yourself, it's like not every day is as hard as others, right? Some days, the temptations and the accusations that Satan flings at us, they feel like especially strong. They feel like especially like we want to give in to them. Like you're in the heat of the battle. But not every day feels like that, right? Not, not every day feels like that. So because you know that those days are coming, 
Because you know that there are going to be those really difficult days when the battle is at hand and when you are in the thick of it, because you know that's coming, put on your armor. Suit up, put it on so that you'll be ready when those days come. Because it's only when you are dressed for battle that you'll actually be able to stand firm against the enemy. Verse 13 says, Now after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. The passage is saying, after you've gotten ready for battle by putting on your armor, after you have made all of the necessary preparations, after you've gotten ready and suited up and put on your armor, after you've made all that stuff, then you'll be able to stand. And verse, verse 10 talks about the strength with which we have to stand. It says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his might. In the original language, there's a kind of a passive tone to that. It's, it's more like, be made strong by the Lord. Let him strengthen you. In verse 14, though, the passage goes on. It says, well, now that you've done everything to stand firm, then do it, right? Then stand firm. This is where the imperative, this is the action part of stand firm. After you've been made strong by the Lord, after you've taken on his armor, take your stand. You have everything that you need. Now use it, right? That's what the pastor's saying. Just now use it. You have what you need. You've put it on. Use it. One commentator writes this. Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. We must be made strong by the Lord and then take our stand in him. We've got to be prepared for battle when it comes. Otherwise, we won't be able to withstand the schemes of the enemy. We won't be able to withstand his attacks and his lies. It seems like pretty obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, you should, put, you should put on your armor before the battle starts. That seems like it makes sense. But don't we forget to do that all the time? When life is going well, when we're not having problems, what do we do? We spiritually coast. We're not pursuing deep heart change. We're not reading our Bibles a ton. Oftentimes our prayer lives are pretty sporadic. We're not really studying God's word. We just coast. We're kind of sitting around camp just being lazy, right? When the battle comes, though, when the difficulties come, when hard things come, we scramble. And we are desperately seeking after God. And our prayer lives are like every 15 minutes we're trying to pray and talk with God. And, and we're desperately trying to read his word. And we're trying to get to church. And we're trying to see what God says. And we're seeking him out. And we're trying to find him. The problem is, is that often in those times we're not actually seeking God. We're just seeking a rescue. We're just seeking a guidance. We're just seeking an inspiration. We are desperately looking for something to protect us. Because we feel incredibly vulnerable and unprepared and afraid. What we missed is that there are little skirmishes going on every day in the spiritual battles of our lives. There are little skirmishes that happen every day, and we've had chances and reminders to prepare for battle. We've had training grounds to learn how to put our armor on or used it, but we missed all that. We forgot we were at war with the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, and when the battle came, we weren't ready, and we got ambushed, and it went really badly. See, we've got to learn to put our armor on before the battle comes. If we just try to throw it on while the battle is raging, it's never going to work. 
So the question is, how do we do that, right? We'll get to that in the last part this morning. So if the when to put the armor on is before the battle starts, then the question is, what is the armor? And what is the armor, and how does it actually defend us against the attacks that we're facing? So to answer, answer the question about what the armor is, we're going to look at its purpose, its design, and its components. So the purpose of the armor, verse 11, is super clear. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The purpose of the armor is to enable you to withstand the devil's schemes. That's the purpose. That's what it's set out to do. That's the purpose of the armor is to enable you to withstand the devil's schemes. So what's the design then? If that's the purpose, then there's a design to, to meet that purpose. Well, there's two things that are really emphasized about the armor, two overarching principles. The first is that it's God's armor, and the second is that it's a complete set of armor. See, it's God's armor. You didn't make it. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it in battle. It was given to you. It was made by God himself. It wasn't forged by your hands. See, we don't empower ourselves to fight spiritual battles. Rather, our strength comes from an external source. It's not within us. It's, it's God himself. He's the one that empowers us. He supplies all that we need for the spiritual battles, the spiritual warfare that we are going to encounter. And secondly, God did not give you a crap set of rusty, breaking, incomplete armor. It says that God, God's armor is complete. See, God gave you a complete and perfect set of armor. It's exactly what we need. It's designed to counter the specific attacks of the enemy. But we have to put it on. It doesn't do any good just sitting in the corner of the room or in a textbook somewhere. We have to put it on. And not only do we have to put it on, we have to put all of the armor on. Otherwise, we'll be vulnerable for attack. See, you design something to solve a problem or a need. I'm not an engineer, but I know that much. You have a particular use in mind, right? You don't design a chainsaw and then use it as like a coffee cup holder, right? I mean, Chuck Norris might do that. That's besides the point, right? The de you designed a chainsaw to cut down trees. And... Your specific design for your chainsaw has the particular application in mind. So maybe you're working on small trees or huge trees or really hardwood or really sappy wood or whatever it is, and the specific application that you're using this chainsaw on affects the design. It affects how long the blade is and how many teeth there are, and it affects how strong of a motor you need, and it affects all those kinds of things. That's why there are so many kinds of chainsaws. Besides the fact that chainsaws are awesome, which is another reason there are so many kinds of chainsaws. But again, that's besides the point. So the, the armor of God is, is designed just like a chainsaw is designed with something in mind. It's, it, it is designed to do something specific. So we need to understand what it's designed to do, the schemes that it has in mind to prevent. Aaron preached last week and he said that the schemes of the devil are the attacks, the attacks that he uses are lies. His name is Liar. It's who he is. It's what he does. Thomas Brooks, uh, a 16th century pastor, writes this. He says, Satan doesn't leave fang marks on our flesh. He leaves lies in our heart. In Genesis 3, Satan isn't like possessing Adam and Eve and causing their heads to spin around. He's lying to them. It's through getting us to believe lies and false accusation that 
Satan gets us to act in a way that is opposed to God and opposed to his kingdom because Satan knows better than anyone else that what we believe changes our actions. What we believe changes our actions. What we believe about who we are, what we believe about who God is, what we believe about our status or standing with him or with others, what we believe about those things, it changes what we do. It changes our actions. And so Satan uses two kinds of lies. He uses temptation and accusation. Tim Keller talks about it this way. In temptation, Satan lies about an overblown sense of God's love and he minimizes God's sense of holiness so that we do things that we're not supposed to do and think, God loves me, he'll be fine with it. And in accusation, Satan lies about an overblown sense of God's holiness, but he minimizes his love, so we just hate ourselves for failing, and we're crushed with guilt. Both of those things are lies. And Satan uses those, and he lures us with them. So what is the solution to Satan's lies? How does God's armor defend again? What, what is the solution? How do you defend against lies? You believe the truth. The way you defend against lies is by believing and knowing the truth. See, the armor of God is not some hyper-specific set of metaphors about some special tools we use to fight Satan and demons. The armor of God is a belief in the gospel. It's a belief in what is true about who God is and all that he's done and who we are because of it. And it's a, an appropriating of that. It's, a, it's using that as armor. It's using the belief about those things which are true as a defense against Satan's lies and attacks. Let me prove that to you as we walk through the pieces of armor. The components of the armor, that starting in verse 14, it says, uh, put on then the belt of truth. The belt is not something you often notice unless you forget it and then you're worried about your pants falling down all day, right? I've had that happen a time or two. Um, so what is the belt of truth, though? Ephesians 1.13 says, And you were included with Christ when you heard the message of truth, which was the gospel of your salvation. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speak then the truth in love to one another. So what is the truth? The truth is the message about the gospel. The truth is who God is. The truth is who we now are because of him. The truth that Paul has been writing about in chapters 1 through 3, that God is a loving father who has all authority and who is incredibly generous and incredibly good and incredibly loving and merciful. And it's the truth about who we are because of God's love. We are dearly loved, adopted children of God, forgiven, cleansed, renewed, restored, made right with him, perfect with him. One commentator writes, a soldier buckled on his belt. It gave him a sense of hidden strength and confidence. If the, truth, if the belt of truth is the, is the remembering the truth about the gospel, don't you think remembering the truth about who God is and who he says you are, don't you think that that would give you a hidden sense of strength and confidence in the midst of battle? God said who you are. He said who he is. That's really good news. Verse 14 goes on and says, put on then the breastplate of righteousness. This is the major piece of armor. It protects all your vital organs, right? You can take an arrow to the arm. You can take an arrow to the leg. You cannot take an arrow to the heart. That will not go well. Likewise, it's our righteousness. 
It's our right standing with God that is our armor that protects our vital organs. The right standing we have with God is not something we earned. It's not something we merited. It's not something that we tried to grasp at. It's something that was freely given to us. John Stott says it this way, I tried, I cannot say it better than this. He says, there is no spiritual protection that is greater than the righteous relationship with God. There is no greater spiritual protection than the righteousness relationship with God. To be clothed with a righteousness which is not my own but Christ. To stand before God not condemned but accepted. This is an essential defense against the accusing conscience and against the slanderous attacks of the evil one. You see, Satan lies to us all the time. He says, God couldn't possibly love you. Look at your life. How could God possibly still love you? Look at all that you've done. Look at all the mistakes that you've made. Really? You think that he would want you? And the righteousness that we have with God says that God proved that he loved us when he died for us. That while we were enemies of his, he made us right with him. That's what protects our vital organs. That's what protects our hearts against the lies of the enemy. The truth proved in Jesus about how God sees us. And the truth that our armor, that our, that our standing with God, our righteousness, is not something that we earned, so therefore we can't mess it up. So it is an incredibly strong and firm armor. We must use it. We must appropriate it to protect our hearts. Verse 15 goes on, let your feet then be fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In Isaiah 52, there is a picture of a lone messenger who is, uh, whose beautiful feet are swiftly drumming across the mountaintops, bringing good, good news to Jerusalem. And as he comes within earshot of Jerusalem, the picture says that he shouts out, peace, good tidings. Salvation. Your God reigns. In Ephesians 2, you'll remember that it wasn't a messenger that came proclaiming peace. It was God himself that came. It says that not only did he, he didn't just bring a message of peace, it says he himself was the peace. He is our peace. Romans 5 says that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God because of Jesus. The peace that Jesus brings, the peace that he is, is not just a vertical peace between us and God. It's a horizontal peace between, uh, between men and women and between all kinds of races and between all kinds of peoples. See, when we have peace with God and with others, through the gospel, we're able to set our attention on the spiritual battles at hand. We're not worrying about our standing with God. We're not battling with other people. We're not sidetracked about it. As one commentator writes, those who have appropriated that peace for themselves have their feet fitted with the readiness, a preparedness to announce and proclaim the good news about the gospel in the midst of spiritual warfare. Verse 15 or verse 16 talks about and take up then the shield of faith 
The word Paul uses here to talk about shield is not a small shield, but it's this like massive, huge shield that a Roman soldier would have worn, and it would have protected like their whole body, this massive, huge thing. And it was especially designed to defend against these incendiary missiles that were being used in the day, arrows that were dipped in tar and then lit on fire and then fired at the enemies. Paul uses that exact same language when he talks about the schemes of the devil. So he says, take up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish those flaming darts of the enemy. See, it's through faith that we believe the truths about the gospel and so shield ourselves from the schemes of the enemy. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, God himself is a shield in whom we take refuge. And it's by faith that we run and flee to him, that we find safety and refuge in him. It's through faith that we take shelter in Jesus, in his redeeming and renewing grasp. He not only withstands the flaming arrows of the enemy, he cuts the head off the enemy himself. Verse 17 wraps up the armor and says, Take then, put on the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 2, um, Paul uses salvation language to summarize what God has already done for us. Right, he says, you, it's by grace that you were saved, that you were made alive, that you were raised up, that you were seated in the heavenly places. Here what's in view is, is the, the using of that truth. Paul's saying, take hold of it, lay hold of it, let it sink in, let it seep into your heart, let it change who you are, let the good news about your salvation, God's redeeming and renewing work which has been done on your behalf and which is Im- immovable and unchangeable. John Piper writes, our salvation is not a tenuous or uncertain thing. God will not save us and then find out that we're not worthy and then unsave us. He already knows how unworthy we are and he still chose to die for us. That's why our salvation is firm and unshakable because we never earned it and we could never have merited it. And so as we live in light of who we are in Christ, our confidence and our sureness in our salvation it protects our hearts and our heads and our minds from the attacks of the evil one. Lastly, the sword of the Spirit. The sword is the only part of the armor that is clearly and obviously not just about defense, but is also about offense as well. The word translated sword here is in reference not to like this big massive saber thing, but is in reference to a short sword, which means that the kind of use that it will take, the kind of battle that you use that kind of sword in, is a close and personal encounter. Does it not feel like Satan's lies and his accusations are close and personal often? Does it not feel like they're directed right at your heart? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that allows you to do battle in those realms. The sword is revealed as the word of God. And I think a lot of times people approach that and just take that as this broad picture about, oh, that's, that just means it's the Bible. But that would not have been in view since the Bible was still being written at the time, right? Rather, what's in view here is the word of God, which is the word of the gospel. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. 
One commentator writes, it's the word about Christ. It's the actual speaking forth of the message that is in view here. The sword of the Spirit then is the proclamation of the good news about the gospel. This is in every sense the idea I've spoken with you before about becoming a gospel-fluent people. We've got to learn how to wield the sword and use it to, to know how to cut swiftly and to jab exactly where we need to. We need to become fluent in our use of it. We need to become masters as we proclaim the gospel into our lives and into the lives of one another. We learn to wield the, the sword of the Spirit by learning how to proclaim the good news into every area of our lives. That's the weapon. The weapon is not like calling on some angels to do something special for you. The weapon is believing the gospel and proclaiming it into every area of life. Note here that it says it's the sword of the spirit, not your sword. Because it's the spirit that makes the sword powerful and effective, not you. As much as we would love to think we're great at proclaiming the truths about the gospel, our words don't mean anything. It's the power of the Spirit of God that makes the sword sharp. It's the power of the Spirit of God that makes the, short, the sword powerful and effective. The sword of the Spirit is not just for defense. This, this, uh, this note just caught my heart and my attention this week, and I'd never thought about it this way. It is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realms of darkness so that men and women so that men and women who are held by Satan might hear his liberating and life-giving word proclaimed to them that they might be set free. You see, Satan and demons, their longing and their goal is to oppose the gospel in every way. And they do that by blinding us to see who the truth of Jesus is. Aaron talked about this last week. If you feel like you want to follow Jesus and you want to come to him, but you feel like there's always this baggage, there's always this barrier, then the invitation is not just to try harder. The invitation is to ask God, say, God, I want to come to you. I need you to change my heart. I need you to remove whatever barriers are there. You're the only one that can do it, so would you do it? Would you show me who you are and would you... Would you cause the truths of the gospel to sink deeply into my heart? See, the good news about the gospel is the only thing that will ever set you free. And it's sharp, and it's powerful, and I would long that you would let it be proclaimed to you. Are you seeing how the design of the armor defends against the schemes of the devil? Are you seeing that? In the 1600s, a pastor named Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. In that book, which has many pages, he highlights many of the ways Satan tempts and accuses us. And he highlights the idea that it's important to, uh, for us to know how Satan tempts and accuses us so that we can set up our, we can fortify our guard in those places. We've got to know where we need to apply armor because we, when we know where we're weak. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think this might be helpful as you think about how Satan might be tempting and accusing you and how you might need to put on the armor of God to refute it. There's a number of ways that Satan does it. Regarding temptation, often what he does is he shows us the bait and hides the hook. Look at the short-term pleasures, but hide the long-term misery, the long-term effects of what's there. He Gets you to rationalize your sin as virtue. I'm not really greedy. I'm just thrifty. 
I'm not really a gossip. I'm just concerned about what's going on in their lives. He shows you the sins of other Christian leaders. Man, if the pastor can't even be pure, man, there's no hope for me then. I'll just, they might as well just give in now. Sometimes he overstresses the mercy of God. Just do it. God will forgive you. He loves you. Of course he'll forgive you. It's no big deal. Sometimes tempts you by making you bitter over suffering. I've suffered. I deserve this little I deserve this little thing on the side. A lot of times you see this with powerful men who have affairs, right? Nobody knows how hard I work. Nobody knows how much I've done. Nobody knows how much sacrifices I've made. I deserve something. Another temptation Satan uses, he says, he shows you how many bad people seem to be having great lives. And that looks like it would be so much fun. I wish I had the freedom to do that. I wish I could just... It seems like that's fantastic. He tempts us by causing us to compare one part of our life to another. Well, I'm, I'm doing really good over here. So I guess, I, you know, I guess it's okay if I'm not doing as well over here. Right? I can be, I'm, I'm doing a great job with this area of sin in my life, but I just don't have time to work on this other one. It's okay. Satan tempts us with lies. Maybe some of those sound familiar to the lies you hear. He tempts us with accusations. One of the most profound ways he does that is by causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. Have you noticed that when you give somebody feedback, you can give like 35 compliments, but the one negative thing you say like pierces their heart sometimes? It's the one thing that people remember even though you've said lots of good things. Sin is like that. As much as you remember the gospel, Satan just brings it up. Remember this? That really sucked. That was pretty terrible. Let me just bring that up to remind you about that. When we look at our sin without looking at Jesus exponentially more, we get caught up in, in just being accused and we get filled with guilt and shame. One other way that Satan accuses the inner struggles that I have, the things that I wrestle with, if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't have those struggles. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Those thoughts I have, those desires I have, a real Christian would never have those. Satan's lying to you. He's accusing you. He's trying to pull up in you guilt and shame that causes you to run from God instead of run to him. I think as well, um, Satan causes us to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. I don't know if you've ever had those experiences. For me, that haunted me a lot of um, my uh, haunted me a lot in college. I look back on mistakes that I made in ways I had hurt people. Satan would often just bring those up as a reminder to me. Hey, remember that? Remember how much that hurt that person? Remember how much you regretted doing that? Let me just let you soak in that for a little while. Maybe some of those things sound familiar to you. Maybe they resonated with you. For me, I think the, some of the things that really resonated with me is the temptation to be bitter over uh, wrongdoing or over suffering. I think this is especially easy to happen in our marriages because those relationships are the most close-knit and they're the, your spouse is the one that, can, that has the most ability to hurt you because they know you the best, Right? 
And that's not their intention most of the time, but it's like, it's just easy to feel hurt by someone who's close to you. I know for me, uh, I'm just so often tempted to feel if I've been wronged or sinned against, which is usually not actually the case, which is usually just me being bitter or having my pride poked. But it's so easy for me to, um, so easy for my heart to get bitter against Hannah, to store up frustration or resentment against her for things that she probably didn't even do. I talk to myself and I say, oh, I have the right to be angry. I have the right to be frustrated. I have the right to like just talk to her badly or to, to not be kind to her. I have, the, I have the right to say, I deserve that. That's a lie. What I need to remember is that what I deserved was death. And instead what I got was the gracious life that King Jesus would offer in my place. And what I need to remember is that I need to put on the gospel. I need to put on the armor of the gospel. I need my feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is quick to forgive. The gospel of peace is quick to extend grace. It's quick to make amends. It's quick to overlook offenses because that's how Christ treated me in the gospel. And so I have peace with him. And so my feet are fitted with the readiness that comes with the peace of the gospel to extend it quickly to others. I think as well for me, the way that Satan tempts me often is through accusations. I'm, no, I'm tempted to find my identity or be tempted to, to have my identity wrapped up in my job or how I think I'm doing, especially as your pastor. Satan knows that, so he presses me on it. A pastor would never do a pastor would never say that. Man, that was a really crap sermon. You did a terrible job. No one understood what you were talking about. You should have spent more time prepping. You should, have be, you should be better at this by now. No one understood what you were talking about. Why, why is it so hard for you still to come up with anything? And I have to remember that my identity comes from being a beloved son of God, not from being a great preacher. My worth and my value were ascribed to me as invaluable when God chose to adopt me as his son when I hated him and when I was his enemy. Not when I preached a great sermon. Not when I really affected change in people's lives. What happens is I need to put on the armor of the gospel. I need to put on the belt of truth, which is the hidden sense of strength and confidence because it's the truth about who God is and who he says I am in him. Are you, are you seeing it? Are you seeing that the armor of God is not this complex tactic or hyper-spiritual metaphor? The armor of God is faith in the gospel. It's a belief in what's true and in the implications of what's true about what God has done for you and on your behalf. We've got to put on the armor We've got to let the gospel sink in deeply to our hearts and our lives. The gospel is not the beginning of our faith. It's the everything of our faith. The gospel is the thing that saves us. It's the thing that saves others. But the gospel is what protects us from the lies of the enemy. The gospel is what grows us and matures us in him. Where are you weak? How does Satan tempt you? How does he accuse you? What parts of the armor do you need to make sure you're putting on? How is the gospel good news and protection to you in the spiritual battles that you face? We've got to look to the gospel to be our safety, to be our protection, not anything else. 
So if believing the gospel is the armor of God, our role in spiritual warfare is putting on the armor, then the last question we have to ask is how do we put it on? Paul answers that question for us in verses 18 through 20. He says, pray. Paul spends more time talking about prayer than he talks about any specific piece of armor. Why? Because prayer is some like a silver bullet weapon that you add to the armor and it makes it all work? No. Because prayer is the thing that much that has to invade and pervade every part of our spiritual warfare. It's characterized, Paul says, by happening at all times, in all occasions, always, and in all kinds of ways. We can't just try harder to believe the truths about the gospel. God has to reveal it to us. He has to pour it into our hearts. And the only way that happens is when we pray and ask him to do it. Don't get me wrong. We have a role in that. We need to learn to proclaim the gospel to our own hearts and to to one another. But none of that matters unless God's the one causing it to sink in. Let me close with this. If the how we put on the armor is by praying and asking God to do it, then it's important to note as well that when we put on the armor, it has to happen before the battle because it takes time and it requires help. You can't do it on your own. You cannot put on your armor by yourself. Paul knew this, so that's why he asked the Ephesians, he says, pray for me. Pray that I would speak boldly the truths about the gospel. I can't do it on my own. We need the help of others. I need my wife to speak the gospel to me to help me put on my armor. And I need my friend Andy to speak the gospel to me like he did this week over lunch. And I need help from you and you need help from me as we learn together to proclaim the truths about the gospel so we put on the armor of God. We need each other's help. The armor is incredibly important. It matters because God's kingdom matters. It's his rule and his reign that we join him in fighting for. Our role is not to win the battle. Our role is to put on the armor so we can fight, to withstand the schemes of the enemy. God himself is the one who has won the battle. He's the one who has already promised to cut off the head of the evil one. That's not on us to do. It's on King Jesus to do. He is incredibly able to do it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and who you say you are. Thank you that you love us deeply. Thank you that like the gospel is such incredibly good news. God, and thank you as well that Paul wraps up our study in Ephesians, not with a, a hoorah speech, but rather with a reminder about where our power comes to live in light of the gospel. God, we cannot do it on our own. We don't have any power or authority. We don't have any strength to do it aside from you. So God, help us to appropriate the truths of the gospel. Help us to use the truths of the gospel as an armor which would defend us against the schemes and lies and attacks of the enemy. God, help us see where we're weak so that we might become strong, not in our own strength, but in you. Help us to cherish and enjoy and treasure you more than anything else. God, would that build in us a sureness and a confidence and, a, and, and just like a, a profound, deep sense of, of dependence on you and a hope and a trust that comes in knowing that in every way you can keep us safe. So we love you, God. 
We thank you that you have saved us and protected us with the gospel. And we recognize as well that you are sending us out with the sword of the Spirit to set others free with you by proclaiming that message. And so we pray that as we join you in the spiritual battles here in Dubuque, that you would keep us safe. But more than that, we pray that you would use us to liberate others with you. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us first. Amen.